those who are maybe joining us for the first time, back in the month of September, we had a box out in the lobby where people could submit questions that they would like to see their Bethlehem pa pastors answer. And so this is part four. When we got to part three, week three, we started to get into to some pretty deep issues where it required a little bit of squirming up here on the hot seat. And I love what someone said after last week's service. I was talking to them out in the hallway, and they, they said, Matt, this— this is crazy. You guys aren't on a hot seat. Your pants are on fire. And my warning to you today is the fire is spreading. What we're going to talk about today is an issue and a topic that will make some of you feel uncomfortable. It will make some of you feel on edge. Some of you will get defensive. And some of you will want to check out because you're so offended. But it's not my fault. I'm just answering the question that was placed in the box that was, that was asked. And to, before we get too much further here, the question that was asked was simply this. When it comes to the Bible, why is the Bible so strict about alcohol? And when we start to dig into this topic, I know that the reactions across the people can be wide and varied. We'll get there in just a little bit. But first of all, I just want to say how important it is to talk about things like this. Because as soon as we label a topic too touchy or too taboo to talk about in church, that's when we start to lose God's influence over that area of your life. And in preparation for this message, I did more reading and more research and more interviews with people than I have ever done with any other message and so here's my disclaimer right up front. When we talk about alcohol, obviously what goes along with that is alcoholism, alcohol abuse, alcohol misuse, lots of different things that we could talk about here. I'm approaching this from a spiritual perspective. I'm not a medical professional. I recognize that there may be some genetic or medical or psychological uh, things going on that complicate your relationship with alcohol or other substances. I get that. But here's something startling that I stumbled across as I got ready for this message today. You see, I don't need to backpedal too much because when it comes to alcohol or any other substance abuse for that matter, at the root of it all is a spiritual problem. It's not that some people have a spiritual issue with how they use alcohol. It's Everyone who abuses or misuses alcohol or is an alcoholic, there is some underwriting spiritual issue at play. So much so that the first thing I want to share with you today, and this is like the bottom line, this is what we're going to build off for the rest of the message, you might not buy into this right away, and that's okay. Would you just consider this as we bring God into this area of life and into this conversation? It's like this. How, how a person uses alcohol usually reflects how they view God. And you might think to yourself, now hold on, that's too much of a broad statement. I don't buy into that. I don't think that's true. Like I said, that's okay. You don't have to believe this. All I want for you to, you to do is consider this as we talk about alcohol and how we relate to it. But by the end, I hope that you'll see that maybe how you've been using alcohol is a reflection of how you view God. And with his power, maybe there are some things to think about differently. 
Now, I love the way the question was phrased, you know, why is the Bible so strict about alcohol? Because the word strict is a subjective term. Some cultures of the world would look at how Jesus treated alcohol, and they would say he used alcohol quite liberally. But for our American culture, we look at what the Bible says about alcohol, and we say, wow, that is really strict. I mean, have you ever thought about how we approach this topic of alcohol? Um, Just think of it in American cultural terms, how we approach it. Picture this. Picture Joe American, and if your name is Joe American, I apologize. I tried to keep it really bland. Uh, Picture Joe American, who has a -a 60-hour-a-week job, He just had to travel three times in this last week, totally stressed out, and then he had like three projects he was not expecting, and they were not fair, but they got piled on his desk, and so he had to put in an extra 10, 15 hours, and he was just worn out on Friday. And he got home at Friday at 6 o'clock, and he turns to his wife, and what does Joe American say? I need a drink. I need a drink. If you're brave, do you want to raise your hand if you've ever said that? I I need a drink. And I'm raising my hand because I've said it. I need a drink. I got got home at 7 o'clock. I've been out all day. I've been dealing with people. And for an introvert, that's like a big thing. I've been dealing with people. I I need a drink. I need a drink. I need a drink. But have you ever thought about what's really being communicated with those words? I'm dependent upon a substance to get me through these next few hours. I need a drink. That's what we're saying. And And here's where this has kind of brought us as Americans. You see, there's two things that are like opposites, but we fill in the gap real easily. The first thing we do is we as Americans, uh, Americans drink to cope. Like if things are going bad in life, if things are stressful, if things are hard, if you, if you uh, had a rough day at work, if, if your wife isn't so nice to you, if your husband is just ignoring you, we drink to cope been a rough day. I just, I need a drink. And you know what's really ironic? Americans also drink to celebrate. Man, it was a great day. Let's drink to celebrate. Hey, happy birthday. Let's have a round. Hey, I got a promotion. Drinks on me, everybody. Let's drink to celebrate. We drink to cope with the bad things. We drink to celebrate the good things. And quite honestly, we can fill the gap with all the sorts of reasons to drink in the middle. This is how we view, how we view alcohol from an American culture. Now, just pay attention to that. That's not how they view alcohol. This is the world we live in. And we, oftentimes, through our words or actions, can contribute to it. I just need a drink. So where has this gotten us as a culture or as a society? I I did some research. I looked up some statistics that, quite frankly, shocked me. But at the same time, it was not that surprising. One in six Americans binge drinks at least once a week. One in six. To binge drink means you have four or five drinks Within a two-hour period, you are drinking to get drunk or to get heavily buzzed. That's the purpose. That's the goal. One in six Americans does this at least once a week. How does that make you feel? Well, obviously the next day doesn't feel good, but there's, there must be a reason that's driving us to do this. Uh, Here's another statistic. One in three Americans drinks excessively. And by excessively, they mean 15 or more drinks a week for a man. 15 or more for a man. Eight drinks or more for a woman. 
If you meet that threshold, they would say you drink excessively. And some of you, you've already got this figured out. You know, see, there's, this, there's this wine glass that's so big. It can fit an entire bottle of wine in there. And you're drinking it, drinking it, drinking it, and you're just like, what? I had one drink. <laughs> or you take that rumbler glass, and maybe you put ice in it. Maybe you don't. But you just you let it fill up, fill up, fill up. And, and then your wife's like, what are you doing? And you're, oh, it's just one drink. So here's what I want you to know. One drink, and this is important to remember, one drink equals either five ounces of wine or 12 ounces of beer or one and a half ounces of liquor. That's one drink. Now, someone in the first service got confused. They thought it was all three put together makes one drink. So I have to be clear. (laughs) They're like, I don't have a problem. Um, That's a different brand of problem right there. But what I hope this does is it brings into this light that maybe we need to pay attention to this as a culture or as a society. What is doing this to us, and why is this such a prevalent thing in our culture? Now, here's what I know right away. Some of you are in the one-third of Americans who's doing this. Or maybe you think you are, but you're not sure because you don't measure alcohol like you should maybe. And some of you are in the two-thirds range where you don't drink alcohol at all, or you drink it just occasionally, and it's not that big of a deal for you. And so maybe we have some different approaches to this, but here's what everyone in this room is thinking right now. At least we don't drink Wisconsinably. (laughs) Those people have problems over there in the state of Wisconsin. Their statistics, you think one in three is bad. It's like every other person in the state of Wisconsin. And the reason I say that is because it's so easy for me and for you, to kind of deflect this as a non-issue. I've got this under control. I don't have a problem. There's nothing underneath this. It's just a little harmless drink a few times a week or once a night, whatever it is. We can easily deflect this away from ourselves. So there's two things I want you to keep in mind as we bring God into this discussion. Two things to remember. Number one, just because it's normal doesn't mean it's healthy. Even if you fit into the middle of the top third or the bottom of the top third, you, you try to find yourself on that scale and you say, well, I'm normal. Just because you're normal doesn't mean you're healthy. Second thing to remember, the misuse of alcohol is only a symptom of a deeper issue. Maybe you still have that deeper issue. You've just found something other than alcohol to fill it. So you might say, I don't have an alcohol problem, but maybe you do have a money problem or a people problem or a self-esteem problem that you've been filling in a different way entirely. So what I hope this message gets to you is one core spiritual truth that we can all take something away with this. And I hope, I hope that maybe this speaks to some people in the room who need some encouragement because how you view or how you use alcohol so often reflects how you view God, and this is a deeply spiritual topic. I want to be careful in this too, because the easy takeaway from this is that, okay, they're preaching against alcohol. Alcohol's bad. Alcohol's the devil. You know, we don't want to do anything with alcohol. There's a a thin line to, to, to cross here because, you know what? Alcohol is good. Here's some things you probably know. Jesus drank. The Son of God Eternal God, who took on human flesh, consumed 
alcohol. In fact, when you look at Jesus' life, some people looked at John the Baptist who didn't touch a drop of alcohol, and they said, well, John is demon-possessed. He's some weirdo. And then they looked at Jesus, and they said, Jesus, he's a drunkard. You know why they could call him a drunkard? Because Jesus drank alcohol. It's kind of one thing he did. He, he got together with tax collectors. He got together with sinners. He, he ate with them. He drank with them. And people accused him of being a drunk. Second thing, Jesus didn't just drink it. He served it. His first miracle, his coming out miracle, was to create 120 gallons of top quality wine. And he helped to serve it to a wedding, or he at least created it so it could be served at a wedding where many hearts were made glad. Jesus served alcohol. He served wine. And thirdly, Jesus actually commands us to drink. He wants us to drink. On the night before he died, he took the cup of wine. He gave thanks, and he said, drink from it, talking to his disciples. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this. He wants us to drink. And in the Psalms, it says pretty clearly, uh, wine gladdens the heart. Wine is a good thing. Alcohol is a good thing. Wine gladdens the heart. But what I want to caution you with this, caution you with, is this. Wine can gladden the heart, but it cannot fill up the heart. It can give you gladness in your, in your spirit, but it cannot fulfill your spirit. See, what we tend to do with any good gift from God is to use it for bad. Money is a great gift from God. We can use it for bad. Sex is a great gift from God. We can use it for bad. Alcohol, wine, is a good gift from God. But that doesn't mean we don't use it wrongly. Alcohol is a gift that can and often is used wrongly. So, we must be careful with how we use it. It is something that God gave, gave us as a gift to be enjoyed, to give gladness of heart, but it can easily become something that distracts us from the true one who fulfills our every need. So let's bring God into this conversation. How would he have us view alcohol, and how would he have us use it? And what are the signs that maybe I or someone I love has a problem? Now, to get into this, we're going to turn to some words from the Apostle Paul that he wrote in the first century, because get this, if you think Americans are bad today with our culture and our, the way that we use alcohol, here's what Paul had to deal with in the first century. Back then, you didn't just have different, you know, churches to go to and then go home. When you went to a temple, you worshipped that God according to who that God was. And for, for the people in the Roman Empire, there was this God called, I think I have the name right, Dionysus. You can fact check me at home. But this Greek god, Dionysus, was the god of grapes, the god of wine, and the god of fertility. So apparently those three things just kind of go hand in hand. And so what you did was when you went to go worship the god Dionysus at his temple, you would drink and you would practice fertility rites, if you know what I mean. And so people in that culture were like, well, this is just, this is normal. If you want to honor a God and be on his good side, you need to get drunk and you need to do some other things. And so throughout his letters that Paul sends into the Roman Empire and beyond in the first century, he has to constantly remind them, hey, hey, just because something is normal 
doesn't mean it's healthy. This is a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem, and he wrote several letters to get those people in the first century to understand what it was. And so we're going to turn to his wisdom to figure out what is it that can drive a person to an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, and how can our view of God be affected as well? He says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. So he's breaking down every person right now into two different things. Number one, he's talking to Christians who have this mind on eternity. Jesus Christ came to suffer and die. He gave us this gift of eternity. And guess what? When you have this brief life filled with pain and stuff, if you have your eyes on eternity, it gives you a whole new perspective. You have joy and peace and contentment and patience because eternity can hold a lot of blessings for you even if this life doesn't. So there's that new part of you that looks to eternity, but Paul said there's also this old sinful nature, or as he says here, this old flesh part of you that is only mindful of the temporary, the passing desires that are here today and gone tomorrow, and the earthly things that we can see. You see, the, 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 the um, sins of the flesh, that refers to the part of you that just wants to focus on what you can have now to the point where you completely lose sight of eternity. So Paul says, look, if, if you're feeding just this sinful flesh, this is what it looks like. It's obvious, but I'm going to tell you anyway. This is what it is. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Debauchery basically means losing control of oneself and doing whatever you please. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And the like means he doesn't have enough ink to write in all the things that are the things of the sinful flesh. But he says it's obvious because all these things revolve around temporary earthly things or temporary desires that we can try to satisfy in the moment. Now we look at this list, and number one, it's awkward. You were probably hoping or wishing that I had read through it a little more quickly. These things are obvious. They bring shame to a person. Everything except for maybe one. Let's say Joe American has a few too many. Let's say he goes to the bar with his friends, and you know what? One turns into two, turns into three, and then they start to lose count. And the next morning, Joe does not feel good. But his friends look at him. He kind of shows up to work late the next day, and they say, wow, he's, he's had a good time. He just had a really good time. Uh, someone, uh, you go to the bar, you go to a birthday party, you go to a wedding. Have you ever said that or thought that about someone? They had a few too many. You just said, oh, they just, they just had a good time. That's, that's all. They just had a good time. You see, I've never looked at a child who's in a fit of rage, and I've never looked at that and said, oh, they're just having a good time. <laughs> Step it up. I've never seen an adult who's having a fit of rage and saying, oh, they're just having a good time. I've never seen someone in the aftermath of sexual immorality and say, oh, they're just having a good time. But you see, Alcohol, for some reason, in our culture, in our mind, is different. Oh, it, it's, it's no big deal. They're just having a big time, and, or a good time. And bef- before we minimize that too much with the way our culture likes to normalize things, 
I want you to hear how Paul viewed drunkenness together with all the other things on this list. He said, I warn you, as I have before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who spend their lives dwelling with the fleshly, earthly, temporary things and satisfying themselves or trying to with those things. Paul says, you don't have your eyes on eternity in the least. Now you can't bring yourself into God's family. You can't be birthed again into his family of your own accord, but you can live your way out of the inheritance. Paul says, I warn you, this was your old way of life. You used to go to the Dionysus temple. You used to get drunk and do all those things. Orgies were common. Don't go back there. Those things promised you satisfaction, but it did not deliver. Those things promised you at least some results, but all it got you was more broken and more empty. I warn you, if you live your life just focused on these things and allowing yourself to be consumed by them, you will forfeit the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Is the Bible strict about alcohol? I think it might be just a little bit. Paul was absolutely serious in the first century, and I think we need to hear the same thing today. So maybe at this part in the message, you're thinking to yourself, okay, do I have a drinking problem? Do I need to, you know, maybe I should do some things differently. Um, Here's where I would direct you. If someone were to come up to me and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I might have a drinking problem. First of all, I will think 10 times higher of that person if they have the courage to come say that. People have come and told me that before, and I think, wow, what bravery, what strength to be able to confess that or bring up the conversation with someone. It's amazing. But if someone were to come up to me and say, Pastor, I I might have a drinking problem. I'm not sure. I would not be so interested in the number of drinks they have on any given night or in any given week. I wouldn't start with, well, how much do you drink? That'd be good, good information long-term, but it's not the most important. I would dig for a different answer to a different question. I would want to know what's making them so thirsty. Because you know what? I got this from another pastor. I'm shamelessly stealing it. People get drunk because they're thirsty. They try to fill themselves up with alcohol because they're thirsty for something. I'll give you some examples. Of when you look at statistics for college students and you ask them, well, what are you thirsty for? Why, why are you getting drunk so much? You know why college students in their first couple years of college suddenly increase so much in their alcohol use? It's not because they like the taste. It's not because they like beer. It's not because they like the way it makes them feel. They do it because they are thirsty for the approval of others. When you're in college, the thing to do is drink. And if you don't drink, you're one of those people. If you want to be a part of the crowd, you drink. And so if you're thirsty for the approval of people, you will drink and be drunk. What are you thirsty for? Uh, Another really common one is a lot of people get drunk because they're thirsty for emotional reprieve, which basically means I don't want to deal with what's going on in my head and in my heart, so I'm going to drink this away and just forget about it. And I'll tell you what, when you do that, it is effective. You stop thinking about your emotions, and you stop feeling your body in that moment. And it works for a few hours, but the problem is still there. 
you think, I just want to, I'm thirsty for this emotional reprieve. I'm feeling this uncertainty. I'm feeling this inadequacy. I'm feeling lost. I'm feeling like she's upset at me. I don't want to have to deal with that right now. I don't want to have to process that. I'm just going to drink it away. Some people are simply thirsty for emotional reprieve. Some people are thirsty for something to do. You get to that part in the day or in the evening when you're like, okay, what do I do now? I know what will bring excitement. I will find some purpose in alcohol. And for some of you, it's like, I'm not sure my life is in the place where I want it to be. I'm not sure my purpose is lining up with anything significant. So I'll just have some fun along the way and drink my way through it. What are you thirsty for? People get drunk because they're thirsty for something. So what are you thirsty for? And as we bring some resolution to that, I want to first of all acknowledge once again that just because you don't drink alcohol doesn't mean that maybe you're still thirsty for something. You're just filling it in a different way. But I'll tell you what, anything in this earth that you try to, to quench it with, it will only leave you thirstier. It will only leave you emptier. So what got us here in the first place? What are you thirsty for? I had a rough day at work. I'm not so confident of who I am. I'm just bored. I want people to like me. I had this thing from my past that was traumatic, and this is my way of dealing with it and coping with it. And I don't want to minimize that if, if you come from a place and you have a, uh, an event in your history that you're <laughs> not healthy with. But when we compare it to what Jesus did, there's a big contrast there. First of all, look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. Again, same language, same line of thought. He wrote this. Do touch screen. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. It's almost like a word-for-word -word, you know, paraphrase of what he said in the other letter. And he says, and that is what some of you were. That's a, that was a, first of all, that's a messed up church <laughs> that he had to deal with. But at the same time, we're pretty messed up too. Well, what are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? Um, consider this. What was Jesus thirsty for? In the weeks leading up to his crucifixion and his execution, Jesus, at least on three occasions, huddled up his disciples and told them straightforward, guys, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed and handed over. I'll be mocked and beaten, and I will be executed on a Roman cross. And if you had to break that news to someone else, hey, in three weeks, I'm going to die, you might follow it up with, man, I need a drink. But you know what Jesus did as he processed this anguish that he was about to endure? He simply spent time with his father. In fact, when you get to the night before his death, the agony, everything, the crucifixion was on his mind. Just hours away and his hands and feet would be nailed into a Roman cross. And he was in anguish in that garden in the middle of the night. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus chose to drink that night. 
but not in the way that you and I have. He got on his hands and knees and he spoke to his father in heaven. He says, Father, this cup of suffering, this cup of, of death is bitter. If there is another way, can we have a different cup? But not my will, your will be done. And at the end of the night, Jesus had embraced the cup of suffering and the cup of death. And he drank it for you. He did not try to escape an alcohol. He embraced what his father's purpose was for him that night. What are you thirsty for? What are you trying to be filled up with? Here's the good news. No matter where you were, no matter what you walked in today with, here's what Paul says to you. He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of him who drank the cup of death for you. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of our spirit, you've been changed. You were so focused on the fleshly, temporal, immediate things that promised great promises and promised great rewards, but in the end left you empty. And God said, I will redeem you from that. That way of life is now dead. And I have brought you to life in Christ. What was Jesus thirsty for? He was thirsty for the cup of God, uh, cup of suffering, which brought you back into a relationship with God. So where do you go with this? What were you thirsty for, and how does God fill it up? Well, one more place where Paul talks about this. He says, be careful, be careful how you live. We've talked about old, we've talked about new. Be careful where you live or how you live. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to loss of control. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Um, sing songs to one another, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. You see, when you're trying to change a habit and turn from something unhealthy, usually a good thing to do is replace it with something better. Now, if, if, if you want to cut back on your drinks, you can just say, oh, I'm done. But you'll still be thirsty. You can try to replace it with something healthy, like, I don't know, a cup of milk or a protein shake. But here's the thing, that might work for a while to substitute the bad thing but you will still be thirsty. Paul is saying there's a better substitute than that. Don't be filled up with wine. Be filled up with the Spirit, and you will see some amazing blessings come through that. And the way to do this is recite. Share with one another these words and these songs and these psalms that come from, him, come from God himself. Paul's saying, what are you thirsty for? You can either choose the thing that will leave you emptier or, here's what God has provided to you through his spirit, a spirit of peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and patience and self-control. And I'll tell you what, these gifts don't come from this earth. They come from eternity. Be filled through him. So I want to give you some practical things here, taking this truth, this idea into the week. I have to go quickly here. First of all, this week, if it applies to you, would you just count your drinks? Some of you will be resistant to this idea. You'll say, I don't, want, I don't need to know. I don't want to know. Would you just pay attention to that? What's the harm of knowing how many real ounces are in that glass? How much wine is really filling up that cup? Would you count your drinks? Just be aware of it. Second thing is this. Would you confess to, to Jesus? Would, would you tell Jesus, you know what? My willpower in the morning is great. I'm so strong. I have the best intentions. But by the evening, 
I just go to the alcohol, I go to social media, whatever it is you're filling yourself up with other than Jesus, would you just confess that to him? Because guess what? He's the friend of sinners. And he embraces those who recognize their weakness. He is your strength. So confess that to him. Acknowledge it. Finally, confide in a friend. There is such power. When you go to someone, a Christian friend, and you say, hey, I've, I've, I've been counting this week, and I don't like the number. To be honest, I don't even know what I'm thirsty for. But would you come on this journey with me? There is such power when you have someone else who can speak into you words of forgiveness and words of the Spirit. And for all of us, maybe, would you maybe correct your language? You don't need a drink. Maybe it's nice to enjoy it. it. You know, wine gladdens the heart. Alcohol is a good gift from God to gladden the heart. But it absolutely cannot fill your spirit. The way we use alcohol most often reflects our view of God. Alcohol is a good gift that we can make use of in bad ways. But when it comes to Jesus, he fills us in every way with every good gift. So would you reflect that in the way you use it? Reflect that in the way you talk about it. So that as you have your eyes and mind on eternity, you can live with a joy and peace that others will find. So that one day, together with your Father in heaven, with your spirit, with his spirit, you can embrace that and rejoice for all eternity. Now, there's one quick final story, and then I promise I'll close. I was talking to some people who have gone through alcoholism, who, who have come out the other end of it, who are in a good place now, and I asked, them, I asked one person in particular, what would you say to people who are maybe struggling with alcohol misuse, alcohol abuse, or even alcoholism? And, and he put it this way. He said that he's got a mother-in-law who had to stop eating so much sugary food because she had to lose weight. And this was after he had given up, you know, drinking alcohol. So his mother-in-law said to him one day, well, you know what? Someday in heaven, I can't wait for when I'll be able to eat a big bag of Snicker bars. And then she said to him, I bet you can't wait to enjoy a big bottle of whiskey in heaven. And he said, no, 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 no. You see, there's something better in heaven waiting for me than a bottle of whiskey. Whiskey or alcohol was how I substituted an empty place in my life for a long time, and that led me to a bad place. I'm in a better place where I don't need that anymore. I've got something better. I've got the fullness that only God himself could give. And I'll tell you what, you don't have to wait for heaven to have it. Count it, confess it, confide it. Honor God and live as his child. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, whether it's alcohol or other things, there's a lot of different ways we can be tempted to substitute your peace and joy and forgiveness with things of this world. And it's a trap we've all fallen into. And at one time, some of us were even defined by that mistake. But I praise you today that you have redefined us through the, through the suffering and death and resurrection of your Son. We are no longer labeled by our mistakes. We are labeled as your children. And along with that comes the inheritance of heaven forever. Give us the courage this week to do what we need to do, whether it's reevaluating our relationship with alcohol or tackling another area of life where we've been substituting you for something else. 
And as we do that, fill us with forgiveness, not guilt, so that we can turn to you in peace and joy and honor you as your child. I ask that blessing for all the people here and everyone listening. And I ask that in Jesus' name.